Well, good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of 2 Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament. God arranged it to put all the T's together. So if you're around Timothy, Titus, you're close to Thessalonians. Got to go back a couple books. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we're looking this morning. One more sermon, one more little side thought before we get back into our study of Luke. If this is your first Sunday here, we're studying through the Gospel of Luke. It's just been a few weeks since we've been into it. But uh, this is kind of the, the last. I like to take this time of the year and just set a focus for the year. And I want to do that this morning here in this text that we're looking at. And set the focus here out of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Would you follow along? I'm going to read all of chapter 1 here, just to set the context. We'll be looking specifically at verses 11 and 12 this morning, but follow along as I read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church, Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. And then here's our text. To this end, we pray always, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together here. Father, we now come to these words, these ancient words that are not just words, but the very word of God. Lord, I pray that these words would strengthen our faith, encourage us, challenge us, Build our hope in Christ. Conform us to His image. All of these things, Lord. I believe that today we can be mightily changed as a result of being in Your Word. I pray, Lord, that that would be true. Help our minds to focus. Thank You for being reminded of the cross and to be able to to bring our life before Christ this morning and the glory of the cross. And now, as we approach this text, may our focus and intent be to hear You so that we might change and live like you and bring glory to you. And I pray this in Christ's most holy name. 
Amen. This week I, I heard a very interesting story. A pastor told a story um, that I, I found rather fascinating, kind of co- connected in my mind to this text. The story involved a Christian couple that was involved in a courting relationship, and they were really seeking to uh, build this relationship in a, in, a, in, a, in a right and godly fashion. So they were going through a process. They had their parents involved. All kinds of good things were happening, and, and it, it was a neat process. And, uh, and at one point... The girl had heard that uh, the guy had went and talked to her father. So she is thinking, okay, it's Christmas time. He's talking to the father. I'm getting a ring for Christmas. So she's thinking this. And so he has this conversation with the father. She chooses not to follow up with her dad at all on this process. She just kind of lets it play out. And, uh, and then a few days later, he calls her. The boyfriend does. And he says, hey like to take you out for a nice Christmas dinner, dress up, and I'm going to give you your Christmas present early. Okay, so you know what she's thinking, right? Why would he give it to me early? I'm getting dressed up, going to a nice restaurant. I'm going home with a ring. This is what she's thinking. So they, they go out for dinner, a nice dinner. He actually had a violinist come and play, and there were flowers at the table, and everything was laid out perfectly. All their favorite foods, they go through the meal. Between the main course and dessert, because dessert was coming, he says, I'm going to go out to the car, and I'm going to get your Christmas present. And before we have dessert, I want to give it to you. She goes out to the car. Girls, you know what she's thinking, right? She's, okay, I know what's coming, but I want to look surprised when it comes, and blah, 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 right? She said she's going through all this in her mind. He comes in with a big box, and she's like, oh, he's trying to hide the ring in a big box and all this, right? And so, box comes, she feels it, a little bit of weight, but it's not too heavy. She opens up the box, and, uh, and lo and behold, inside the box was an orthopedic pillow. Actually, it was a, here's the exact pillow, a cervical linear traction neck pillow. Cost about $75, right? And this guy isn't, isn't real rich. So he begins to start saying, I know that you've been having neck problems and you've been having a hard time sleeping. And, and, and I talked to a doctor and a bunch of people and they said, this is the best pillow in the world for people who have neck issues. And then he begins to explain the pillow. This is what he says. This is almost verbatim. This pillow is going to help you wake up free of neck and muscle pain because you see the pressures relieved when your head and neck are supported correctly. You're going to experience deep, sound sleep because your body will be relaxed. And if you snore, this will reduce snoring because your airway will be unrestricted. And then it goes on. This pill is going to enhance your circulation because, you see, when you're relaxed, your blood flows better. And not only that, you'll have better posture. She's just like, uh, okay. Then they order dessert. She says she's going, he's talking the whole time about this pillow during dessert, and she's not listening. This is what's going through her mind. What did I miss? Did I get ahead of the relationship? Did I completely blow it? Did I, did I miss see God here? Did I, what did I miss here? Did I miss something big? Did dad say no? But if dad said no, then he definitely wouldn't allow him to take me out for dinner 
So maybe dad said yes. I don't know. Maybe they weren't talking about it. Maybe he was talking to dad about my back issues and, and, and this and that. And so she's going on and on, and she's trying to assess this. And she said she finally got to the point when she said, uh, she, she said she's literally praying. She's eating her dessert. He's going on and on about the pillow and her back and neck. And, and, and she just finally says, okay, God, you're in charge of my life. You're in charge of everything. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your timing. I got emotionally, I got ahead of the process. And, and so this is all this whole big internal journey she's going through during dessert. They finish dessert. The guy says, you don't seem real excited about your pillow. And she said that she had to kind of feign some kind of excitement. No, no, thank you, thank you. But she, of course, doesn't want to say, I thought you were going to propose to me. And then he says, well, there's one more thing this pillow does, and, and, and I don't think you, because I don't think you really understand how great this pillow is, and let me show it to you. Can you hand me the pillow? So she hand, hands her the pillow, and he says, one more thing that this pillow can do. It's not on the box, it's not in the directions, but I just want to show it to you. He puts it on the ground, and he gets on one knee, and he says, and it will help me propose to you. Okay. There's the end of the story. For all you women there, it's, it's over. Okay. I'm actually surprised you all went, aw. I really am. I thought you would have said, I can't believe he did that, right? Because now he, of course, did all of this for a reason, right? He's trying to surprise her. He's trying to, to, uh, to, to get her. And, and I could, you know, he worked out his script of everything he was going to say. He planned out a whole 30-minute excursion about pillows and, and, and all this stuff during dessert, knowing that she's going to be going through this inner drama and uh, just to mess with her a little bit. A little bit of a warning of the type of guy you're marrying, but anyway, I wasn't involved in that counseling. You know, <laughs> if that's how he's going to start the relationship, right? No. But okay, now let me cycle back. I, I, as this story was being told to me, as she was going through this whole internal journey that she was thinking through, um, it got me thinking about something. It's just that little part of the of that story that connected me to to actually this passage in a weird sort of way. And, and it's the fact that she went through this whole process of trying to uh, put what she, where she thought her relationship was in perspective. She thought she got ahead of him. She thought she got ahead of God. She thought she got ahead of her dad. Right? She was thinking, I got ahead of all of these things. And, and, and she was trying to get everything in perspective so that she could leave there not crushed. Because if he really was just giving her a pillow, it would be just like this massive emotional drop, and she would have felt like she missed something big. And I was thinking about that process that she went through and that whole internal soul-searching and, and really trying to figure out, am I seeing this correctly? Did I read my relationship correctly? Did I read my prayer life correctly? I, I thought this is where we were at, but I missed it. And I was thinking, you know, that process goes through life. Uh, we go through that a lot in life. Kind of evaluating relationships, evaluating where we're at, and specifically evaluating our, our walk with God. Because the reason where I identified with that story is, you know, always during this time of the year, I try to take these two, three weeks around the Advent season, and, and I ask myself, God, am I where you want me to be? I don't mean that like my house or my location or, or that, but, I, but in terms of the pursuits of my heart, the things that are driving me, Am I, have I gotten ahead of you, God? 
Am, am, I, am I ahead of you? Am I too far behind you? Is, is, is what I'm focusing on what you want me to be focusing on? And every year I go through this process of just kind of soul searching. What do you want? What, do you, what should I be doing? And, and it always comes back to, to, to a simple reality. And I think about this for myself. I think about this for our church. I think about the fact that it's easy to get caught up in the things God doesn't want us to do and ignore the things that God wants us to do. And it's easy to kind of get ahead of the relationship because we start taking things that God has not asked us to do as our journey in life and, and then ignoring the very things that God's asked us to do. Like, for example, God has not asked us to build this church. He's not asked us to do that. He didn't say, go into the world and build the church. He said, I will build my church. And hell will not prevail against it. That's what I'm doing. I'm building the church. But it's easy to get caught into, how do we build the church? What are the things we should be doing to to build this? No, Christ is building his church. But what is it that Christ has asked me to do? What is it that Christ has asked us to do? What's at the core of it? What's the guts behind all of the the mission that we're to be on and and everything that we're doing and all of the things we talk about in Eyes Out and and, and all the, the things that go on in this church? What's the guts of it? Well, it's pretty simple. He's asked us to make disciples, right? Go, as you go, make disciples of all nations. And, and this time of the year, I was thinking about it the past couple of weeks, I started asking myself, am I truly doing what I have been asked to do? Make disciples. Now, it's easy to make excuses for not making disciples. It's easy to say, I've never been discipled before. How can I make disciples? I've only been saved a few months, or, or I don't understand this, I can't do this, and this is bigger than it is, and what do I have to give, and I've got my own problems. And yet, all excuses aside, he said, make disciples. So how do we do that? Well, today, what I want to do is I, I kind of want to go through this little self-journey like this girl went through, and to say, you know what? How are we doing with the one thing that Christ asked us to do? Make disciples. And rather than making this a daunting 50-point way, here are all the steps to making disciples. I've got all kinds of books in my office on how to make disciples, you know, hundreds of pages to it. I want to just focus in on one aspect of disciple-making. One aspect that every single person can do in this room, and in fact, you will do at the end of the sermon. I'm going to give you an opportunity to practice it. And it's this. It's becoming a disciple-making prayer. I believe the first step in making disciples is to develop an intercessory heart for one another. An intercessory heart. Oftentimes, our our Christian relationships are empathetic hearts. People come with their problems and we identify with them. Oh, that's horrible. I feel bad for you. You know, can I make you a meal? You know, these kind of empathetic hearts. But, but, but the real key to being a disciple-maker is to say, I want to develop an intercessory heart. I want a heart that prays. And out of that flows a lot of discipleship. And my challenge for us this year is that in all of the things that go on in, in mission, all of the, the opportunities we're going to have, the West study and going to Honduras and trip to Czech Republic and other things that might go on and, and, and in all of the, 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 the mission things that go on, At its core, we have got to be disciple-making in that. And if we're not making disciples, 
then we're losing track of the very thing Christ asked us to do. And I want to show you the simple way, by just being a disciple prayer. Pray like a disciple maker. Now, we're going to go through this. I've looked at this text. There's verses 11 and 12 here. And, and basically, I've developed three questions that I believe this text answers. This text says, well, answers the question, what should we pray for? It answers the question, why should we pray? And it answers the questions, on what ground should we pray? So we're going to see those things in this text. And the challenge for you is, is, is a couple things. Number one, I, I pray that this would stir your heart to becoming uh, more uh, developing an intercessory heart rather than just an empathetic heart for people. But the second thing is that there's going to be a really big challenge at the end of this. A really big challenge. I'm not going to tell you what it is now, but it's going to be a really big challenge that I would love for you to rise up to rather than shrink and run away from. So, hopefully, you'll take the challenge. But, we'll leave that for the end. Let's just jump in. Let's just look at this text. This, this particular passage is a really powerful passage because Paul is writing these three chapters to the Thessalonians uh, because for a couple of reasons. One, he's encouraged. They've been going under a lot of persecution. And he's encouraged that they're remaining faithful in the course of that persecution. But then there's a second reason why. They, they've been led astray a little bit. Somebody came and told them that Christ had returned, that the kingdom of God had already been established, and he wanted to let them know, no, that's not the case. The return of Christ hasn't happened, the kingdom hasn't established, which leads to the third reason why he writes the letter. Because some people believe that, they stopped working. Which should be true. Like, if you were actually in Revelation 21, then you wouldn't necessarily be, be you'd be thinking, oh, this is it, I'm going to enjoy God forever. And so they stopped working. And so he says, listen, Christ hasn't returned, go back to work. you got to work. Got to labor. Okay, so that's what this letter is about. Laced throughout this letter is a bunch of prayers. They're kind of sprinkled in. This first one, here in chapter 1, really gives us a heart of intercessory prayer. Praying like a disciple maker. And I want to show it to you. And so let's look at this first question. What should we pray for? There's two things that Paul prays for. The first one is this. That God may count you worthy of your calling. Look at verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling. Now you say, to to what end? What's He talking about? Right before this, starting in verse 5, or actually around verse 3, He's saying, you guys are really, you know, owning up under the pressure. You got a lot of pressure on you. And these people are persecuting you. They're they're attacking you. They're going after you. They're they're beating you up. They're taking away your money. All kinds of things are happening to you. You're under all of this pressure, but you've remained faithful. And Paul says, man, this is so encouraging to me, so encouraging to the church. You've remained faithful. Now God is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to judge those people that are persecuting you. But you know what else is going to happen? Your faith is going to shine like a bright light when I come back. In essence, you're, you're keeping your faith on Christ right now. You're keeping your faith on Christ. And everyone says, oh, you're a fool for keeping your faith on Christ. You're just a fool for following him. And then Christ will return, and they're going to go, you were no fool. You were no fool for keeping your eyes on Christ. He says, now that this is going to be a glorious day. Your faith that you have now will shine forth at the return of Christ. 
And so he says this then, to this end, because of all of this is happening, we pray, we always pray for you. See that word always? We always pray for you. You know, Paul and his missionary team, they're on their knees. God, I'm praying for those Thessalonians. They're in the fire right now. But then this is what he prays. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. Now what's he saying? It's a simple prayer. He's saying, God, you've got this calling in their life. Let their life reflect that calling. Now let me unpack that for you a little bit so you can understand this. You have to understand something about Paul. Paul quite frequently refers to salvation as a calling. Sometimes you can let that pass you by when you read Paul. You just see the word calling and you just go, oh, salvation. But the reason why he calls it a calling is because salvation is this. We are in the kingdom, like Paul talked about, or uh, Ted Paul talked about. Uh, We're in the kingdom of darkness and God calls us out of that kingdom. And he brings us in to the, the kingdom with his son. It's a great thing, right? But then he sends us back as ambassadors to the kingdom of darkness to reflect the glorious salvation that we've been given. So we're called out to righteousness. And then as righteousness ambassadors, we're sent back. But when we're sent back, what happens? Persecution comes. Trials come. People hate us. We live in the same sinful world as everyone else does. We deal with death. We deal with pain. We also deal with people hating us. We also deal with the fact that that we're not going to advance because we're not going to lie, cheat, and steal. And and all these things are going on in the world. And and at times, people are going to mock us. And and we're going to face all of this. But God's intention is that through all of that pressure, His righteousness would shine. That's God's intention. And that's the way his name would be known. So to make someone worthy of their calling means that that very righteousness that we've been called to would reflect out of us when we're sent back. See the picture? And so he's saying, I'm praying that God would keep working in your life and that calling of being called out and sent back with righteousness and faith and love would be seen. We see this here in, in their life here in, uh, in verses 3 and 4. Just, just look up at verses 3 and 4 there, chapter 1. He says, we, always, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because, notice, your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we boast about you in the midst of your persecutions. You see that there. You see, as they're facing this persecution, right? They've been called out. They're sent back. That's the calling. They're living Christ out in the world. What's going on is they're facing pressure. Two things are happening. Number one, their faith is increasing. As the pressure comes, I'm trusting in you more. More pressure, I'm trusting in you more. More pressure, I'm trusting in you more. Not only that, the pressure and the faith is causing them to love more. The fruit of the righteousness of Christ is always faith and love. Faith and love. And so it's growing, it's increasing. And it keeps going. He says, I'm so excited. And what Paul is basically saying, if I, if I just want to summarize it, I think what he's saying is he's saying, we are just praying that that faith and love would continue to grow, would continue to, 
to be pushed out in your life. As you face more trials, may you get more faith. As you face more trials, may it soften your heart and make you love more. More faith, more love, more faith, more love. Now, a disciple-making prayer would, would say this, that when you're talking to somebody who's under the pressure, that we would move beyond empathy, saying, wow, that's horrible. That's, empathy's a great thing. But that we would then take it one more step and say, God, I'm now praying that their faith would increase and that their love would grow in the midst of that trial. Make them worthy of their calling. Make that worth come out. Make that what you're doing in their life begin to be expressed in the midst of that trial. When the trial comes, don't make them say, God, what are you doing? And I hate these people. See, that's the absence of faith and love, right? The trial comes, God, and ugh, right? Hatred in both ends. What Paul is praying is, God, let him just say, God, I'm believing you more. You're here. You're, you're here now. Soften my heart in this. Soften my heart. Now, what he's saying is, Paul's saying, I pray that for you. I pray that for you. But now this leads to the second prayer. Second part of this prayer. Because that first part then, they be counted worthy. But then the second part is so important. Now, think about praying this. That God may make you fruitful. Notice what he says and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. Now what does this mean? Let's just put it in simple terms. Somebody's under pressure. What's the, what's the, pressure that, you know, what's the natural desire when you're under pressure in the world? The natural desire is to hate God and hate others, right? To challenge God, God, what are you doing? And to get bitter towards others, isn't that it? But then there's this thing inside a Christian that says, I shouldn't be that way, right? There's this thing inside you that says, wait a minute, I've been called over here to the kingdom of light, and, and I should be shining the gospel over there. I, I should be loving, and I'm struggling with it. I'm having a hard time. Paul is praying, and let me, let me put it in my words. Paul is going before the Father, and he's saying, Father, I believe that you have the power to give them the ability to act on those spiritual desires that you have placed within them. I believe you have that ability. And so I'm asking that your power would shine forth in them so they would act on that little thing inside of them that's saying, you're doing it wrong. Paul understands the struggle of the Christian life, and this is why he's praying that this would be done by faith in God's power. That's a powerful prayer. Could you imagine if 30 people were praying that for you every day? Now, I know some people ask this question. Why should we pray that? I've had many people come to me over the years and say, if God is sovereign and God's going to do all this stuff anyways, why pray? If God's in control of the world, why pray? Anybody ever ask you that question? Maybe you've even thought that question. Okay, why pray? Well, I'm going to give you the answer to that. It's a very simple thing. When God made this world, he could have designed this world any way he wanted, right? He's God. One way God could have designed the world is that every day you open up your door, and on your door is a well-rounded breakfast. Oatmeal, bananas, whatever. 
whole grain, organic toast, orange juice, freshly squeezed, right there, and everyone has their tray, and they pick it up and they eat. They put the tray back outside because God's going to fill it at lunchtime with a nice salad and a bunch of things, right? God could have done it that way, but he didn't. God could have made it that every single human that was born was born out of the dust of the earth. That every time God wants a baby, he just packs some dust together, breathes life into him, and there's a child. But he didn't. God designed this world that I get my food from the fact that there are people who are gifted to farm, who know how to plant things. And then there are people who know how to take that and harvest that. And then there are people who know how to process it. And then there are people who know how to cook it. And I benefit from all of that. Why? Because God created a world where we are intended to be in relationship with each other. God did not put us in a world where we are isolated individuals. So when God wanted children to come into the world, he didn't just say, I'm going to keep putting dirt together and keep breathing life into it. What did he say? He said, I'm going to make a man and a woman, and then out of relationship will come children. Out of relationship. And then when the children are born, they're born to be raised. Right? They don't come out of the womb ready to roll. They think they are, right? (laughs) They're deceived in that. But they're come what? They need to be raised. And how are they to be raised? In a relationship with parents who will love them and raise them, discipline them in the fear and instruction of the Lord, who will care about them, show them affection, hug them, kiss them, all kinds of things. God placed us in a world of relationships. When he calls us, he calls us into a body. Okay, so here's the big answer. That's a long answer to all of this point. Here's the, here's the simple of it. Why do we pray? Because God designed us to be in relationship with each other. God did not design you to be an individual Christian doing it all by yourself, picking and choosing when you want to engage in relationship and disengage. It's not a pragmatic thing. I come here only when I need you, then I'm getting out. God has put us in relationship with each other. And part of that relationship is caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, loving each other, creating environments of growth, and interceding for each other. And part of God's plan to create endurance in your life is for me to pray for you. Because God isn't just going to give you endurance outside of relationship. He wants it to be in relationship. So this is a good challenge to us individual Americans that think I'm just picking the church that's best for me instead of thinking I'm in relationship with the body. And I have a responsibility to pray and encourage one another and lift each other up. And so Paul prays this because he realizes God's plan is that we're in relationship with each other. And God's plan is that his work is going to be carried out in relationship. Just like God's plan of bringing children is through relationship. God's plan of providing food is through relationship. God's plan in providing for care and, 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 and health in life is through relationships. God's put us in a world where we're to function in relationship. So we pray. And we pray, God, help them. Make them worthy. Allow that faith and that love to shine forth. And by your power, God, by your power, would you give them the strength to act on those little things going on inside of them that are saying, I need help, can't do it. By your power, God. That's what we pray for. Second, 
Why should we pray? What's the end goal of the prayer? There's two goals that Paul has. The first goal is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. When you see the word name, usually in the Bible it refers to character. It refers to the, the way a person is identified. What you think of them. Their nature. And so what he's basically saying is I want the name, the nature, the character of Jesus Christ our Lord to be glorified. The word glorified means to put on display. You're glorifying something, you're putting it out there for everyone to see. Revealed. It's another word you could use in there. And here's what he's saying. I want, I'm praying this so that when you're in that fire and your faith is going and your love is going, I want Christ to be exalted at this moment. This is the end goal of the prayer, one, one side of the end goal. Christ, you be exalted. This is usually where our prayer stops. Oftentimes, our prayer goes this way. God, would you end this problem in their life so that they would have peace? Right? End this problem to bring them comfort. End this problem to help them get through it. Provide for them so they would have what they need to get through the day. We don't usually push our prayers far enough to say, God, would you be glorified in their life? Now, here's the reason why we can struggle with praying that or why we don't think about doing that, is that if the end goal is the glory of Jesus Christ, then one possible outcome could be that the problem won't go away. Right? One possible outcome might be that that pressure is producing more faith and more love and God wants to be glorified in the midst of that. It might be that God's will is for Jim Elliot to die on a beach as a missionary. It might be that that's the way he's glorified. But you see, the end goal isn't end the problem. The end goal is, I want Christ to be glorified. So I'm praying that, 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 that all these things that Christ is doing in you would, would, would flow out of you so that Christ would be glorified, that he would be put on display. This is exactly what Peter said in his message. Right? This is all over the Bible. Let me just show you one place, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Peter encouraged the church. They were under persecution as well. And he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's his point. Your faith and your love is continuing. The pressure is on. They're mocking you, making fun of you. The pressure is coming. Nothing's resolving. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. But you're keeping your faith and, and the love is growing. And then Christ returns. And like I said before, everyone's going to go, oh, You were right. You were right. When all those people stand before the presence of God, your faith and your love will be a constant echo in their mind that Christ was God, is God, the Lord of the universe. And it will echo in them, I believe, for all eternity. He will be worshipped. This will be part of the process how God makes every knee bow and every tongue confess. This is what Peter's saying. This is what's going to happen. So keep it excellent is what he's, his challenge to them. Because he wants Christ glorified. But then there's a second end 
to his prayer. Notice the second one. It's the glorification of the believer. This is kind of a weird one. He says not only that you, that, that Christ would be glorified in you, but that you would be glorified in Christ. Now that seems counterintuitive. It seems almost contradictory. We're talking about having Christ glorified, and now all of a sudden, I'm getting glorified in Christ. Now what does that mean? This is, this is really cool if you can follow this. Hopefully I won't make it too confusing. I want you to turn to, well, you don't have to, it'll be on the screen, but you can also look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 explains this point. If you can catch this here in Ephesians, it'll, it'll make this point make sense, and I believe it'll really blow you away too. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now he's talking to the husbands. He's saying, husbands, your, your love is to reflect the love of Christ. What is the love of Christ? The love of Christ is this, that he is working in your life. And when you face those trials and you face those persecutions, what comes out of you? Your sin, right? Your sin does. Trial comes your way, you're struggling with faith. Trial comes your way, you're struggling with trust. Trial comes your way, you're struggling with love. And what do you have to do? You've got to work through that process, don't you? It's not like you just instantly do it. You have to work through it. person's coming after you, you have to love them. Someone in your family is difficult to love, God puts them there. And all of a sudden, every time you see him, every event, you've got to go through this whole process of learning how to love him, right? What is that process for? That is the process of Jesus slowly cleansing you of every amount of unrighteousness in you. He brings that to come to let the gunk come out. And when the gunk comes out, he's cleansing you slowly, lovingly, patiently. Just dealing with you with patience and love over and over and over again. So what happens? Eventually, that's going to lead to a day when he is on the throne. And everyone will see him as the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's going to say to you, come here. I want to see my work. And you will walk up perfect without spot or wrinkle. Perfect. It'll be a glorious day. He's saying, this is what Jesus does. So when Paul says, I want you to be glorified, or you to be glorified in Christ, what he's saying is, his work that he's doing in the process of your life, I'm longing for the day when it becomes seen. And that wonderful work that he's doing in cleansing you right now will come to fruition. And he'll call you before the throne. And you won't have anything to be afraid of. You will stand there without fear, Jude says. You have been made perfect and righteous. And so Paul is saying, man, I'm praying that you'd be counted worthy. And I'm praying that those things that are inside of you, those latent little desires to do what's right, would start to come out of you in the midst of the trial. Because you see, I want Jesus glorified on earth. And I want you glorified in heaven. Not in the sense of glorifying over God, but in the sense that that work that's being done in you now would carry to its end in heaven. And when you stand before the throne, it'll be incredible. 
This is what he's talking about. You see, at the very heart of Paul is worship. And this is what he's praying for. God, do this work so that you would be glorified. And that work would be completed. This is how he prays. Now, let's look at the last one, then we'll sum it up here with the challenge. On what ground should we pray? The ground of our prayer is very simple. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see the word according, it always means that, uh, that, 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 that something would correspond to something else, right? According to means this. This is the illustration. You've heard me use this before. Uh, if somebody had a billion dollars and they gave you a choice, I will give you money out of what I have or give you money according to what I have. Always pick according. Because the gift will match the wealth. Out of could just be a nickel. According to would, would reflect it. And so he says, this is all done according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how great is the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ? It's awesome, right? Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. And so, so here's the grace of God. Here's how it works. God's grace is such that he sends Jesus to bear your wrath, to take care of the consequences for all the sin, so that Jesus can dispense his grace and cleanse you slowly and patiently without whacking you upside the head every time you do something wrong. God the Father's grace was such that he said, I will make a way for you to be forgiven so that Jesus' grace could be displayed upon you, so that when you are dealing with your sin and it's a struggle for you, Jesus isn't in heaven saying, you got three seconds. One, two, three, gone. He's not doing that. He's patiently working with you, patiently caring for you. Why? Because of the grace of God the Father, who forgave you the cross, poured out His wrath on His Son, so you could be spared that so you could experience the, the grace of Jesus and His cleansing. And so Paul's saying, because of the grace of God, because of the grace of Jesus, I can pray that your life would match what Christ is doing in you, and that you'd begin to act on the Spirit of God's call in your life to say, don't do this or do this, and love and forgive, and knowing that you're standing in the grace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A grace to forgive and a grace to perfect. Now picture praying that type of prayer for people. Picture moving our prayers from empathetic prayers and problem-solving prayers to disciple-making prayers. Picture changing all of the way you consider praying for anybody for the rest of your life. And saying, I'm going to start praying like a disciple maker. Now do you realize you could have just gotten saved 15 seconds ago. And you could pray this prayer. Maybe no one's discipled you. Maybe you've been abused by pastors in the past. You can still pray this prayer. You can pray this prayer. So, what do we pray for? Let's wrap this up. What do we pray for? We pray that believers would be counted worthy and bear much fruit. That's what we pray for. Why do we pray? We pray that Jesus would be glorified in us, and that we would be glorified in Jesus. And on what grounds do we pray? We pray on the grounds that God 
would do this by His grace and not by our works. We go to prayer for people on this. We intercede. Now, here's your challenge. I've got a threefold challenge for you. The first one's going to be right now. And then, and then it's going to grow from there. And, uh, and you might be tempted to blow this challenge off. Don't. Don't. It's a, it's a big one, but I'll push you here. First is this. First part of the challenge is this. I would like for you to pick someone out in this room right now. Girls, girls, guys, guys. So guys, no praying for girls. Girls, no praying for guys. Once you look around, pick someone out. Don't make eye contact with them so they don't know you're praying for them. Okay? Look, pick someone in this room, even if you don't know someone. It could be your first Sunday here. Just look at them. And pray this prayer. And in just a minute, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray this prayer. The quietness of your heart. Go through, read through 2 Thessalonians 11 and 12. Pray through that for them. Second challenge. It's going to get a little more intense. Second part of the challenge is, I'm going to ask you to pray every day between now and next Sunday this same prayer for this person. Every day. So you've got to do it till next Sunday, and you've got to do it next Sunday, too. Third part of the challenge. This is the biggest part of all for some of you. Some of you, this is going to push you way out of your comfort zone. I would like for you to call this person this week or, if you don't know them, to approach them next Sunday and tell them, I prayed this prayer for you. Okay? So that's what I'd like. And I'm off limits. You can't pray for me. At least this week. Next week you can start praying for me again. If it's a bad Sunday, next Sunday, bad sermon, then... That was a bad idea, but I'm teasing. Now, I know that that third part is going to challenge you. But here's my challenge for our church for this year. We talk about eyes out. We talk about the West study. We talk about possibilities of church planning in Canada. We talk about going to Honduras. We talk about opportunities to go to Czech Republic. We talk about lots of mission things. Helping out in a a variety of different areas in, in our community. But the guts of the Eyes Out mission is being a disciple maker. And if we're not doing that disciple making part, it doesn't really matter if we start something out west. It doesn't really matter if we go to Honduras. It's irrelevant. It's a waste of money. Because the mission is to make disciples. And so the first step is to have God change our heart from empathetic prayers to intercessory prayers. Okay? So that's the challenge. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Ken's going to come up. And for just a minute, he's going to play the guitar. And I'm going to give you about a minute or so to just pray this prayer for someone. And when you do, you will have just taken your first step in disciple-making. But I'm going to ask you to just pray through this passage, and let's begin to start cultivating an intercessory heart for one another in this body. So just take a moment and do that, and then when that's done, I'll close us in prayer. But, but go ahead and pray that now.
Father, I just I come before you this morning and I pray, Lord, that you would stir within our hearts the desire to truly intercede for one another. Lord, may we go through that soul-searching to say, I've got to be committed to you and what you've asked me to do. And Lord, I pray that this would just rise up within us a love for one another, that we would just begin to intercede for one another, begin to build relationships with one another. Lord, I pray that, that, that we would begin to see you working in the context of these relationships to cause us to genuinely love and care, to see your power worked out within us. Lord, may we be counted worthy. May, may what you have done in calling us and making us your child be manifested in this world. And all those things that go on in our heart, the, the, the moments that we are reminded to, to keep our faith in you and to keep our love for others deepening, May we act on those things. Lord, we can't do it in our own strength. We need your power. We need your spirit to rest upon us, to to enliven us, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called. And so, Lord, may this be true of us. Lord, may we begin to bind together as a unit that we might literally walk in relationship with one another, interceding for one another, caring for one another, literally making disciples and that out of that presence here may that go into the world and for those that are praying about the opportunity to go out west Lord may they not just go out west just to start a church may they go out west to make disciples to praying that your name would be made known that Jesus Christ would be glorified in our state We pray for the believers in Honduras, Lord, that they may endure, they may may in your power reflect the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. They may act upon the righteousness that's within them in the face of persecution. For our brothers in the Czech Republic that are ministering in a secular nation and dealing with apathy and all kinds of issues that go on in a secularized culture, May they stand firm for the gospel. May they work hard to the glory of Jesus. May they stand opposed to the culture and reflect faith in you and love for others in a glorious way. Not so that we would build our church, but so that Jesus would be glorified. And those who are facing trials in this church and are building right now, Lord, may we see beyond the moment to the glory of Jesus. Give us a foretaste of how glorious you are. And may us, in, the, in that foretaste, be able to take the, the momentary light afflictions and consider it nothing when compared to the eternal weight of glory. Lord, may you be glorified. May all this be done because of the grace of the Father who forgave us and the grace of the Son sanctifies us pray this in his most holy name. Amen.